let's go i'm hyped welcome everybody to let's break it down today's date january the 5th first podcast super excited this is going to be a podcast all about overwatch league so i hope you guys are pretty excited about it season two coming up my name is mark we'll go by lemmings and with me today is my buddy brian aka jwill2287 Brian and I got together. We both love Overwatch League. We've been friends for a long time. And we both wanted to be involved somehow, some way in this new league. And uh, we started talking about it. And we thought one of the best ways to be able to do that might be a podcast. That's right. And uh, here we are, giving it a shot, taking our stab at it. Just diving in head first. Let's have some fun. Heck yeah, man. So what we want to do with this is just kind of cover everything overwatch we want to start off with the basics we're going to move into discussing the teams potentially even some strategies and then once the season kicks off really want to get into how the matches are going the stage is going who's looking strong covering trades all that kind of stuff yeah a lot of a lot of movement this offseason to say the least definitely definitely all right so without further ado Let's get into some news. Right off the bat, Brian, we got Blizzard handing out some suspensions. Yes, lots of suspensions. They're taking uh, taking account boosting, account sharing, things like that very seriously. Not only are they taking it seriously to the point of suspending and possibly banning people, but they are posting it for the public to know who you are and what you did and what you're being punished with. This looks like a big thing out in Korea. I don't see too much U.S.-based or European-based account boosting. No, not a, not a ton. Um, there was a recent article that came out. And there were about 18,000 out in Korea, not necessarily professional players, though, that were either banned or suspended from their accounts for much of the same violations. So this seems to be a, a trend uh, in the Korean player world for some reason. All right, Brian. So here we are. This is January. And are, are we looking at kind of the completed rosters for most of these teams? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, obviously, you can still sign free agents, bring people off the uh, the minor league squads if necessary. But most of the key dates are, are locked in. Uh, all of them happened last year. Uh, August 1st of 2018 was when teams could begin to, to make player trades. And there were several that, that happened. There were some uh, releases, some signings, contracts just not simply extended. A lot of things happened between September and October here. So in, on September 9th, the inaugural season agreements officially ended. So anybody who didn't get extended, so to speak, or get a new contract became a free agent and could sign with any team, obviously. September 9th through October 7th was the exclusive window for Overwatch League expansion teams to sign free agents. So all the teams that they were bringing in, the eight that they were bringing in, that's when all of those teams had to go out and f- sign the free agents that were available. And then on October 8th, the free agent signing window opened for all teams so the expansion team got the first pick of the free agents people who didn't get a new contract or anything like that and then on october 8th it was free game much like the nfl when it hits the new league year everybody just goes crazy at midnight you know um hoping i hope at some point that overwatch league gets to that that point where you hit midnight going into that day and teams are just vying for the top free agents that are available then yeah it's definitely a pretty exciting time i know in the nfl get a little pumped up see what your see what your teams are doing and kind of get an idea of what they think they need so yeah that's uh, honestly that's a big way to keep everybody involved year around tracking who's going where knowing what free agents are available what your team needs are 
Um, if, if Overwatch can kind of jump into that just a little bit, it doesn't even have to be as dramatic as the NFL or even the NBA, but if they can get to the point where free agency matters, that's keeping your fans and casual fans, so to speak, even more involved in what's going on year-round. Definitely. All right, another big another piece of news, I guess, maybe doesn't have too much of an impact on the play, but uh, Blizzard did sign a deal with Fanatics. So last year, you bought your merchandise, you bought your team gear from a Blizzard store. Sounds like this year, going to be buying it from Fanatics. Yeah, they're uh, pairing up. They're going to, I think, on the Overwatch League site, there will be um, merchandise still purchased through Fanatics, but you will be able to get it from either site would be my assumption. They're still working all that kind of stuff out, the logistics of it, but the deal is in place. You're going to be able to buy your championship gear just like you do for uh, NBA, college football, college basketball, NFL, all your stuff right from Fanatics. I think it's a a really good deal because Fanatics runs a lot of uh, percents off year-round, free shipping, stuff like that. This is, this is, in my opinion, a big move for Overwatch League and making it more mainstream and keeping the momentum going from Season 1. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's also another outlet for people who maybe are interested in other sports. You go into Fanatics, you're looking for your NHL, MLB gear, and you see in the corner, you see Overwatch League and maybe maybe get interested. And it's just another place for people to kind of see what it is and, and garner some interest. Oh, absolutely. This is this is all about increasing the influence, the spread of the ban- the brand itself. Uh, Overwatch obviously is for the most part contained to people who've grown up with PC playing or gotten into PC playing or even Xbox just gaming in general, so to speak. But uh, with this, you, you're going to be surfing websites and you're going to see this Overwatch League stuff and you're going to go, what the heck is that? And then you're going to do more research. We're gonna, they're going to slowly bring in more fans over time. Um, and I think it's a, a big, like I said, a big, big deal for them with uh, the growth of the league. Yeah, and that's a great segue into something that I'm pretty passionate with Overwatch League, which is I think they formatted Overwatch League in a way that makes it easy for fans of the other league, the other major leagues, uh, baseball, football, hockey, to get interested <laughs> to grab onto a team and follow that team and their successes and failures throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the formatting is very simple to, to flow with. You've got divisions, you got teams, you got matchups, standings, all that kind of stuff. Um, the, probably the, the most comparable ones, most likely going to be hockey, just because of you get, you get credit for wins and losses per map, so to speak. And obviously in hockey, you get credit for a point if you do get a tie. Uh, or excuse me, you uh, lose in overtime because they don't do ties anymore. But uh, it's definitely going to be something that fans are not going to have a difficulty understanding. They may need a little help understanding how the game individual inside the game works here and there, but over understanding who's in first place and whatnot, nah, that's straightforward. Yeah, and I always found it pretty hard to follow a lot of other esports leagues um, or organizations because it seems like uh, there's this kind of this regional, you've you got to play in these regional tournaments. Those regional tournaments boil up into slightly smaller tournaments. There's winner's brackets, loser's brackets. It's hard to kind of latch onto a team and say, this is my team all the way through, because they might be out in an early regional tournament and you got nothing left. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, that is along, that's on par with uh, how international soccer works for club teams. So you have all these different leagues in Europe, and I personally, I love soccer. I'm a big sports fan, and I follow soccer. 
I couldn't tell you what the top league is still because I haven't sat down to figure all that stuff out. <laughs> but it, it gets confusing, obviously, because you're like, wait, I'm a fan of this team, but we're playing in this tournament, and then we play this team who's in this completely other league. You're not having that problem. It's like the NBA, the National Football League, um, MLB. This is the the one spot for the best players in this sport professionally, and this is where we go to compete. Everybody plays their matchups. Top teams make the playoffs. Here we go. What are we even talking about? So Overwatch League is an esports league, which was formed around Blizzard Activision's Overwatch title. Overwatch is a six versus six first person shooter video game. It's available on Xbox, PS4, PC. Overwatch League is based on the PC version. And one reason I like it is it combines strategy and also kind of that fast twitch shooter technique into objective-based gameplay so guys who have high skill caps you know really good at the, the twitch shooting the sniping those kinds of things guys from old school unreal potentially you know call of duty that kind of stuff and then bringing into that all together into hey you guys all have to work together to take this point uh escort this payload those kinds of things yeah, there's always some sort of obviously overall game objective, which everybody's working to, but the strategies and the thought that go into each one is always a little different. Um, and if anybody thinks hitting a baseball is incredibly difficult, which it is, I would love to see some people try to in exert some muscle control over a mouse, a keyboard, and a little reticle to try to hit somebody in the head over and over again. What these players can do with their hands and their hand-eye coordination is incredible. Absolutely. Overwatch, uh, Overwatch League will be played on maps that have a couple different different ways that they work so the first map type assault it's you have to take a first point and then you have to take a second point as the attackers and obviously you're defending you're trying to make sure that doesn't happen yeah on the assault maps those are are really just a full attack defend the whole time um you win obviously based on how how many control points you get or how much percentage you get per control point the obviously the goal is to have more than the team the other team that you're competing against um, I really enjoy control maps. I like the aspect of only having to worry about one thing. It makes my life a little simpler. Um, but it, the, the yeah. strategy that goes into attack and defend, you, you really see different comps come out because if you're defending, you're not necessarily going full dive comp all the time. You're not doing some crazier things. You're really just saying, hey, we just have to stall and let the timer run out. You're really playing a game against the clock um, more so than you're trying to achieve your own objective. Yeah, definitely. And I like the way the maps are organized. The attackers have a little bit of, a, uh, of an advantage on the first point. The defenders usually have to go a lot further. Attackers usually have a less distance. Um, and then that kind of rotates on the second point. The defenders have a little bit easier time getting to the control point, and the attackers have a little bit longer to go. So once, you know, you might you might take the first point pretty quick, but then the defense might be able to mount a much more successful defense on that second point. Absolutely. Finishing an assault map is always, always much more difficult than getting the first point. In fact, when you full hold on an assault map, you're doing something pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, in that round, but finishing those is always, always fun, always a lot of excitement, uh, a lot of big plays usually come out at the end of those maps, um, it's always something to, to watch for. Yeah, so for Overwatch League this year, the Assault maps, they're going to rotate through Horizon Lunar Colony, Temple of Anubis, and Volskaya Industries. Some of my favorite maps, all, by the way, for the, uh, for the Assault ones. I love playing Horizon, um, I love playing Anubis, Volskaya I've grown into, even though I hated it at first. Um, but those are going to be some interesting maps to see these teams play year uh, throughout the season. Definitely, I think 
early on, Volskaya was really tough, had this really concentrated choke point for that through that first point. Uh, mm-hmm. Then people started discovering verticality, getting fares up over the top, and then there's there's actually kind of a way to sneak around, um, get through into the side, and actually kind of behind the defenders. So interested to see how those get utilized. So right. the second kind of map we got here, what do we got? Assault Escort, what they like to term as a hybrid map. So on the assault map, assault, assault maps, you have just attack, defend, and it's just control points. On the assault escort ones, the first point is actually an attack, defend situation. But after that, you will get a payload that uh, deploys, and then you have to push the payload the rest of the way to actually complete the map. Um, those are obviously uh, require different sorts of uh, comps again, different sort of strategy. Your first point comp is not necessarily going to be your comp the rest of the way after you've either achieved uh the payload being de- deployed or if you have given up that first point and now you have to defend against the pushing payload it just changes the way you have to go about your player composition throughout that entire map the whole time yeah i think for me arguably this is the type of map that is most susceptible to see like a snowball or a snowballing effect if the defending team overcommits to try and defend that first point you can see them get their death staggered and you know the the attackers end up just rolling that payload right through and so i i think these are these are probably some of the ones where if i'm a team i'm really strategizing how much are we going to commit to that to the defending that point and then making sure that we have a really solid defense prepared for the payload oh absolutely if you if you know you're losing the first point it's not necessarily worth diving back in one at a time to keep getting staggered because once they get on that payload you have to find a way to slow that down before they get to the the first payload checkpoint and then obviously the the third and final one um, but it's it's definitely something that teams have to consider whether they're going to recommit either their alt economy or if they're going to just send somebody in to just be a nuisance and kind of stall out the cap um, just to contest the point here and there. But it's something that every team has to consider uh, when defending on those maps for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So this year, Overwatch League, uh, the hybrid maps are going to be Hollywood, Kings Row, and Numbani. I think the first map I ever played was Numbani. I don't know how I don't remember how I fared on it, but I'm fairly certain that was the first one I ever played. That's one that I still enjoy playing for sure. Uh, the other two are going to be fun. Um, I actually enjoy hybrid maps altogether. I like payload maps personally, but um, those are some of their better maps in my opinion when to see the action and whatnot uh, from teams. Just because, like I said, most teams are saying, "Hey, if we're not necessarily always going to get that first hold because our respawn's so much further away, if we die trying to hold that first point." So all the action then eventually by the time you get to the end of the map, especially if you're in overtime, just is a full out brawl on the cart the whole time. And it's just, it's awesome to watch. Yeah, definitely. I think when I first got interested in Overwatch, I was actually was catching Seagull on stream. That was really interested in King's Row. And I think King's Row was some of the first maps I played. So I think I, I would like to see them come up with some other form of a hybrid map. I don't know what could actually potentially happen, uh, honestly maybe push a payload and then have to go to some other sort of uh, type of map. Maybe if they could combine an escort and a control, that could get interesting. Like you have to escort all the way to here and then control the point for a certain amount of time. That could be something intriguing down the stretch for sure. Yeah. Or I was thinking maybe like uh, stringing different types together. So you got a payload to a certain point, then, you know, capture the point and then more payload or something. But yeah, anything interesting. It'll be interesting to see if they add in a a payload race um, at any point in the future. I don't think they're planning to, um, but I do know back when you and I were playing TF2 uh, that they had introduced payload race maps later in our careers, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed those because you TF2 have... uh, professional careers. <laughs> yes, yes, you know. 
our pub time. <laughs> but uh, but those those maps were some of the more fun ones because you have to do everything. You don't get to just stop and say, all right, we got to defend the cart. You have to defend the cart and try to push your own. It splits your resources up, splits your players up. You got to be really coordinated. I just thought it added a new element that that would be fun to watch professional players actually go at. Yeah. I definitely think so. Or um, the other one I was thinking of is kind of a two-way payload. So whoever's on the carts moving it towards... Uh, oh, absolutely. Like a tug-of-war type deal. Yep, exactly. What we, okay, we got control maps next. So control maps are essentially king of the hill maps. Um, those are, you know, the point locks after a certain amount of time, after everybody's left spawn and tried to run to, to where that control point actually is. And the goal is to have them start fighting before uh, the ma- the point can actually be captured. Um, but that is a matter of holding on to the point for a specific amount of time. Um, they do it in percentages in Overwatch. So you have to get to 100%, uh, and then you obviously win that round. But those are just straight up King of the Hills. Again, another fun concept because you get a lot of action on the point. If you happen to be staggered a little bit, you really do have to pause and reset. And sometimes you have to give up some control percentage in order to actually you know, reestablish the point yourselves. Um, but it's always fun. You get some matchups where people get to 99% the first time they cap it and not win the map. That's how crazy some of those can be. And that's how difficult the point can be to capture if you lose it. So in my personal opinion, I think it's actually important to get the first cap. Um, but honestly, after that, it's if you give up the cap, you better get it back in a hurry because it just gets more and more difficult to, to recapture after that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, these are the most fun overtimes. So um, if you're not familiar with it, at the end of a map, if uh, one team has the point captured, but the other team is on the point and contesting it, then the map will actually go into overtime. So, um, and you can actually, as long as you have a player on that control point, you're going to keep that overtime going. And so I think this these result in some of these crazy brawls where the contending team is just tapping onto that point, tapping on that point, and they're just running people in there, and the defense has to continue to hold, 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 evaluate whether or not they're going to spend their ultimate economy on this. Uh, is this the fight? Is this the fight that we commit? So I really enjoy the overtimes on control maps. Uh, no, those overtimes are always, always a joy to watch, uh, especially when you have two two teams going at it who are contesting, continuing to contest. Sometimes you're staggering in one by one. Sometimes you get those hero plays. Uh, but it's always, always an exciting time to to watch overtime on these King of the Hill maps. I always enjoy when a team is able to to contest for a long period of time, then capture it and somehow hold it the rest of the time because it just makes that one moment so worth it. And like you said, it does make that alt economy more more crucial because you're saying, do I use my alt here because I may not get another chance to use it depending on what the percentages are in that round. Um, if you have a, like a 99 to 95 and you're trying to cap, you may not get another alt, and you may have needed it to, to hold off if your team was already capping. Um, conversely, though, if it's 99-99, you're using everything you got, and you're saying whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Those, ones are, those ones are great, great shows to watch for sure. Definitely. All right, so for Season 2, uh, Control Maps. So new to the rotation, actually really new to the game, is Busan, uh, and then Ilios and Nepal. Ilios, always always a fun one to watch. You get a lot of far play on those, and the good ones know what the heck they're doing. Um, if you're lucky enough to see Pine play some McCree, just enjoy the show. Um, but those are two of the bigger assault heroes uh, when we get to watch people play Ilios, um, especially when you get to have Lighthouse. you got a lot of obstacles that you can float around and just keep going around to avoid snipers and, and hit-scan heroes. 
but the point captures are always worth it. There's a lot of booping. There's well where you have uh, Orissa, you have Lucio. Yeah, absolutely, well's my favorite. You have people that can knock people into the well and kill them, and so you don't necessarily need to get near them. You don't even have to do a ton of damage. You just need to make it so they fall into the hole. Um, those ones are always fun moments to watch uh, to see what kind of players and plays they make regarding uh, the well itself. Yeah, I think actually some of my favorite glory plays are people who actually make it out of the well. So if you get booped <laughs> in, you know, some players... Um, yes, absolutely. Some players can get back out. You know, Lucio can try to wall ride all the way out. Or um, actually, I saw a pretty good Ash play the other day where she got booped in and she has a, a move where she can kind of send herself backwards and she used that to get out of the well. So Nice. All right, and the last one, and probably one of the... One of the ones that kind of hits close to my heart, it's probably one of my favorites, I think, is just full-on escort. So I like these because in the lore, they're actually kind of story-driven as to what the Overwatch team is doing. Um, and then in an Overwatch League, it's just one objective, move this thing all the way through the map. Um, so these are called escort maps, also commonly referred to as payload maps. I just really enjoy the moving objective, you have to, as the defending team, really pick your spots. Where's the best choke point? Where can we best funnel? I mean, all these maps are really cleverly designed, so there's not really this this one location that's just impenetrable. But, you know, there's certain places where they just really open up, and then there's certain places where they get real narrow. I mean, uh, King's Row, when you, when you start off, it's kind of this open courtyard type area and then it goes through these narrow kind of city streets back alleyways those kinds of things and then at the end you actually go through another kind of hangar type area and at the end it ends up in this big hangar looking space um so it's just so much you know pick your pick your spots pick where you're going to commit and then as the attackers you always have to kind of keep in mind yeah we might want to push we might want to commit to this fight but don't forget to payload Absolutely. Oh man, payloads are always my favorite because you do have to think about so many things. When is a good time to fight when you're defending? When you're pushing the cart, how many people do you leave on the cart? Do you try to put maximum people on the cart so you get as much out of it as possible at one time? The things that go into a payload map always, always intrigue me. Um, I've enjoyed them again back to our TF2 days because again, you have the objective, you have to have people focused on pushing that payload because you don't want it to get stalled out anywhere. If you get stalled out and you get low on time, then it makes it even more difficult to finish the map. The faster you can push a payload to a point and continue to gain extra time, the easier capping that last one will be just because you have more time to make decisions, strategize how you want to finish the map, so to speak. Um, again, kind of like the hybrids, though, if you, can get, if you can get snowballing, it can end in a hurry for some teams. Um, what was the one we were watching last year? I think somebody finished King's Row with like five minutes left or something like that, which was yeah. an absurd time. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, it can just snowball so fast. But like you said, as a defensive team, you have to pick your spots. Where are the most advantageous areas to try to go stall the cart rather than just continuously running in and try to stand on the cart? But again, yeah. as an attacker, you try you want to try to leave people on the cart as much as possible. You have to go get your picks when you can, or if you need to reset, obviously you drop off the cart a little. But if you drop off for too long, it's going backwards and now you get to regain that time again and just so many things to think about. Yeah, and there were actually a couple matches last last season that I remember 
you know, the the offense just won a fight, but the the map ended, and the announcers are sitting there saying, nobody touched the cart, nobody touched the cart. So again, if you overcommit, you overextend, you try and push a fight, and then you you forget about, hey, you know, we're in overtime, that overtime expires quickly, and bang, all of a sudden the map's over, and you lose, even though it felt like, oh, we just won the fight, we had a good chance. Definitely. You just, you can't do it though. You got to stay on the cart. You have to be focused on that. You can't step off and try to go get that one kill just because you're like, oh, let me stagger this one person. Yep. That you attempting to try to go stagger could lose the round for your team. Yeah. So this year, season two, Dorado, Rialto, and Route 66. Route 66. That one always seems to me to be one of the more don't hate it. Frustrating it's my ones. favorite. No, it's one my favorite. Frustrating ones. I don't hate it. I actually enjoy the map personally. So frustrating because that last point is so unbelievably hard to cap. Absolutely. The, the first two are kind of an open area. You have a yeah. couple of choke points, but there's a lot of space to maneuver, yeah. a lot of free area to flow around in so you can get away from bad situations. But once you get into that last point, you're in this small, nor- narrow alleyway. Then it, <laughs> yep. it opens up a little at the end, but yeah. man, you have to push through this tight choke. And it's just so much going on. There are ways around. You can try to get some pickoffs with uh, some heroes. Yeah. Um, it just it, there's so many things that have to go right for you, and it's almost one of those things where it's like, look, we just need to put people on a cart, stand behind our Reinhardt shield, and dare them to come get us. Yep. Well, it was my favorite. Uh, so McCree's kind of my man. I like McCree, <laughs> and so that's kind of his hometown. So it is his hometown, that's for sure. But he's got some company now that Ash has been introduced. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He's got competition. All right, so that is how Overwatch is played. And now let's get a little bit into the Overwatch League. Overwatch League, again, eSports League, Overwatch the game. It's going to begin, and I think for a lot of uh, married or uh, people with significant others, uh, this was a huge mistake on Blizzard's part, but <laughs> the season's going to begin on Valentine's Day in the yeah, United fellas. States. Make your plans. Make your plans early in advance. Plan accordingly. Uh, so for the United States, February 14th, 2019, Valentine's Day, uh, you know, very heavy romantic day for couples. Yes, it's always a romantic day. Fellas, do make sure to take care of your significant others, your wives, your girlfriends, whatever it may be. But yep. uh, if you're trying to watch some Overwatch League, you better plan accordingly. Get that stuff done early. Maybe ju- duck out of work a little early so you can get all your romantic stuff done and be home in time to watch the kickoff of Season 2. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and for Eastern time, there are some later games. So you'll see. I think there's an 11.30 game. So, All right. So Overwatch is broken up into uh, four five-week stages. So, you know, stage one, two, three, four, each one of them being five weeks uh, long. And they're going to be playing 28 matches per regular season, for this regular season. So uh, last season was 40. They've implemented, again, a lot of changes we'll cover. Um, but this this regular season, only going to be 28. Yeah, so that's actually a pretty significant change, but I think that's one all the players wanted, and possibly even some of the fans. But with the eight expansion teams, you're not losing matches per week. In fact, there are more total matches per week now with the expansion teams um, than there were last season. There are just fewer per team, which is a good change. Um, those 20 teams, though, are going to be broken up into two divisions still, Atlantic and Pacific. Um, so let's do a quick rundown real quick of who's in what division and what teams we do have. So new to the league this year in the Atlantic division, we have the Atlanta Reign joining the Boston Uprising, Florida Mayhem, Houston Outlaws, London Spitfire, New York Excelsior, new international team, Paris Eternal, also in the Atlantic division. 
with Philadelphia Fusion, and then two more expansion teams for four total in the Atlantic, Toronto Defiant and the Washington Justice, who looks exactly like you'd expect any Washington team to look with their logo. If you've seen the Nationals, or if you've seen the Caps, you're looking right at it. The Redskins are the only ones that are not doing it right, apparently, in D.C. Even D.C. United has kind of a shield-looking... Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And then moving on into the Pacific Division, a lot of international edition here. Um, the new Chengdu Hunters uh, joins in with the Dallas Fuel, Guangzhou Charge, Hangzhou Spark. And those guys are joining in with some really good competition from last year. Los Angeles Gladiators coming on strong towards the end. Los Angeles Valiant making a huge push at the end, getting into that top five. San Francisco Shock struggled a little bit, got some players halfway through, pretty, you know, coming up towards the end. Soul Dynasty started strong, kind of trailed off, and hopefully this year's Cinderella story, we'll see Shanghai Come on, Dragons. Shanghai! Get that first win, baby! <laughs> yep, yep, they had a really tough season once. We'll see how they rebound. And a new uh, Canadian team, the Vancouver Titans. Yeah, oh, Canada! <laughs> I can't wait to get my, my Canada flag for no reason, just to wave it. <laughs> if you like us if you're a seattle seahawks fan you were probably going to be a vancouver titans fan uh yep. the color scheme is pretty much identical very similar um and then, uh the other big big team of note that uh made a splash with their logo release the hongzu spark um went with the all pink layout so some of these games could get interesting i'm not sure how i feel about it i have no issues necessarily with the color pink i'm just not sure how it's going to look on screen with the characters being in all pink it could get a little weird to watch all right so let's talk a little bit about playoffs. Each division winner and the following four top teams in the standings from both division will qualify for the postseason playoffs. The last two playoff spots are claimed by teams who qualify via a play-in tournament. And I know Brian and I are pumped up about a play-in tournament. Oh, I'm all about this play-in tournament. Uh, but quickly, so the two division winners are going to be should be your one-two seeds and then seeds three, four, and five, right? No, okay, so it's an eight-team grand finals playoff. So, yeah, so you're going to have three, four, five, and six come from those those uh, seeds throughout the regular season standings. And then that play-in tournament is for spots seven and eight in the grand finals. And that's from every team that's not in the playoffs currently. So you're going to have your teams that may have not had a great regular season but can get hot at the right time yeah, make that and find push. their way in the, into the grand finals and then somehow maybe – pull off the upset of all time uh, within Overwatch there and run all the way through and be grand champion um, of the league for the season. So um, the play-in tournament, I think, is a spectacular addition by Overwatch this year. It means every team can stay invested all year long because you always have a chance to win the big prize at the end of the season, regardless of how your regular season went. Um, But at the same time, for fans, tournament play is always, always creates so much more uh, drama, so much more excitement your heart rate's going to get up. You're going to be rooting for your team. You're going to say, hey, we just, you know, we had a bad round, but we still have a chance. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Um, it's it's basically you're thinking of that. I don't know. It, it didn't state whether it was one and done. I didn't, I'm assuming it will be. Obviously, it'll just be a, a one um, one match type of setting. But you're looking at that as a NCAA type deal where you don't get to take a day off anymore. It's, it's we got to go. We got to win now. Otherwise, we're done for the season. Yeah, um, yeah. But at least you know that your regular season, even if it wasn't what you expected, isn't going to doom you from having a chance in the grand finals. Definitely. And brief note, last year, all-star break was at the end. 
this year they're moving it into the season, giving everybody a little bit of a break between stages two and three. So it'll be a little bit of a break, and that's when we're going to have All-Star Weekend. And this is this is how leagues should do All-Star Weekends, and I'm talking about all professional sports leagues. Um, in fact, I think the only one currently doing it wrong is the NFL. Those players don't want to play in the Pro Bowl. No. I understand necessarily why they can't do it in the middle of the year, so they have to think of something to change it. But you should always be doing your All-Star events in the middle and rewarding the players who've been playing the best uh, to that point in the year. Um, maybe get some fan voting in again as to who should be what. Um, I think Overwatch took a, a lot of good clues from the NBA and uh, and hockey where they have these skills competitions now. Um, so those are going to be fun to watch. But that's just a way to give everybody a break. Let the players just take a deep breath, relax in the middle of the year, have yeah. some fun playing a game that they enjoy, and just be around each other doing – you know, dumb stuff that they probably wouldn't do in real games, but trying the hero plays that they are always afraid to do because it's not worth it in their yeah. real matches. Another really, really important change for me this year, home games. They are introducing games that are not going to be played out in L.A. Um, there are going to be three of them this year. Hopefully in the long term, they start playing individual matches at different locations or each week is just a different location. But for this year, we'll take the three that we're going to get. They're going to be at Dallas, Atlanta, and in L.A., that is for the Valiant to host that week. Um, we have confirmation on two locations at the, the moment. Um, the, the matches in Dallas are going to be played at the Allen Event Center in North Texas. And then the matches that are going to be in L.A. are going to be played at the Novo by Microsoft. So those are the ones in L.A. are at the end of the season in August. The ones hosted by Atlanta are in the middle of the year, I think late July. And then the first one in Dallas is going to be played April 27th and 28th. They're already selling tickets for all of that. Um, but those are also going to be shorter weeks. So there's only going to be four matches uh, each day for two days in, on those events. But I'm really hoping this becomes a bigger trend. I would love to see it where if you're the home team, you don't have to travel to go play your match. If you're the road team, you have to travel just like every other professional sports league does. Yeah. Um, I hope they can get away from sending mass teams to one location to play, even though I totally understand why they do it that way. But definitely a big deal for anybody living in those cities or anybody who's going to be rooting for a team in one of those cities that they may be able to travel to. Because last year there was no way we were getting myself, you, um, except for <laughs> your work purposes, jerk. Yeah, um, yeah. I got out close. To, out to L.A. Got you got so close. close. <laughs> you almost went. But for the rest of us uh, out here in Virginia, you know, we weren't going to have a chance to – to really get out to LA to watch any of those matches. Uh, we could have traveled up to New York um, to watch uh, the grand finals of the Barclays Center, but if your team's not in it, it's really kind of like, why why make the expense? So really looking forward to this change. I think it's very important for them to expand, again, the brand, expand the game overall, and draw more people into it. But this is this is huge for the fan bases of those teams and anybody who who is going to be lucky enough to be able to attend and watch one of their teams at those locations. And I think a lot of these changes... Uh, come from a place so last year uh, throughout the season and then certainly at the very end of the season many of the players came out and I think some of the fans came out and said that was a grueling season so we've already discussed we've added some teams but even though we've added teams each team is going to play a lot fewer matches well 12 but that's a lot that's um, a lot that's a lot <laughs> yeah that's a lot of matches serious? When you were talking um, so, about playing, what was it, two per week, three per week? Yeah. It was three per week, right? Yeah. If, if you were a fan of a team in Season 1 Overwatch League trying to stay with your team and watch each one of those matches, man, it, it, it could get pretty grueling. And I'll, I'll be the first person to admit towards the end of the season I was I was pretty burned out um, just even trying to watch, trying to make the time with the family and everything else, just trying to watch the matches. Um, yeah, I couldn't imagine trying to play and scrim all week at that 
that blows my mind. I can barely play for, you know, four straight hours anymore. Yeah, much, you know, many fewer matches per team. We've got the all-star break now. And a lot of this is to address uh, player burnout. So from a from the player perspective, at the end of last year, we saw probably one of the more popular, certainly popular Twitch streamers, Seagull, ended up retiring from Overwatch League, citing burnout as as the practice schedules, the constant scrimmaging, all that as, as one of the reasons he wanted to kind of take a step back. Um, XQC, in effect, also from Dallas Fuel, kind of mentioned, dude, this grueling... XQC had his own set of issues. We can get into that at a different time, <laughs> I think. Sad, geez. Where's um, the list? Did we have the list on that? Yeah. It's a long list. I don't know if we can get through it in one podcast. <laughs> Scott, I got um, nothing for the guy. <laughs> I know, right? Um, Pine from the uh, NYXL, uh, Baby Babe from the San Francisco Shock, uh, Mendokuse from uh, Houston Outlaws, and even Zumba from Seoul. Um, some of those players actually even took leave of absences from the teams during the actual season, you know, mostly citing, you know, personal reasons, but it was generally assumed he was burned out. I was just I'm mentally, physically exhausted from scrimmaging eight, eight hours to 10 hours a day. Some of these guys were trying to vaguely maintain a Twitch career um, throughout a lot of that. And so I think this is pretty well summed up. Um, courts, uh, courts.com to cite it, published an article called Esports Players Are Burning Out in Their 20s. And uh, Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and who has been you know, consistently associated with someone who should purchase an uh, Overwatch League team, um, retweeted the issue and said, uh, the core issue is this game changes. Halfway through the season, each stage it was changing. They were updating to new patches, um, even so much so that new characters and new maps were being introduced in the course of a season. And so uh, his contest was that requires intense practices to try and get a team together. Hey, there's a new map. Well, now we got to practice every angle, every approach, every attack, every defense for this new map. Oh, hey, there's a new character. Oh, that completely changes. We'll get into it a little bit later, but arguably one of the most popular com- compositions in season one was dive composition. Halfway through this season, they release a character named Brigida, who realistically was was brought into the game to counter the dive. So here you are, you've been built on the strategy, and then all of a sudden there's a character who breaks your strategy halfway through this season. So. Uh, Cuban went back and forth with Nate Nanzer, who's the commissioner of the Overwatch League. But I think it's it's all pretty summed up well, um, and he has a pretty good punchline at the end. Um, but his contests were, how often does it change? How much time do you have to adapt and perfect to those changes for the uh, professional teams? And um, his punchline was, the NBA doesn't make meta changes midseason. So I think that's a pretty good punchline, but... A lot of these changes that we've discussed, the reduction in matches, um, the breaks, those kinds of things are all, I think, to try and alleviate those player concerns, probably fan concerns, and even team ownership concerns of these players burning out, not wanting to play, not having their heart in it. Oh, absolutely. This is if if you're looking for the top reason 90% of these changes were made, it's because they needed to to make sure that they weren't overworking their players, so to speak, or at a certain level overworking their employees, which is what they are. Yeah. Um so it's it, everything was player driven, again, like you said owner driven, but at the end of the day, they wanted to make sure they could keep their best players in the league 
happy, so to speak, but more importantly, just not making them feel like they're overwhelmed. When you're talking about playing a, a computer game, a lot of people are just looking at it like, what are you talking about? You get burned out. You're sitting still. You're not doing anything. Not realizing how much mental fatigue a game takes on you, how much mental fatigue practicing takes on you, because there's so much thinking that goes in. You reacting to things as they happen, but that's because you've been in the situations before. The reason we run drills and sports is so we can put you in the same situation over and over to where it becomes second nature. Sure. And practices are physically, yeah, practices are physically grueling. Yeah. As and there's, but there is a mental fatigue that goes with that. But when you're talking a game where it's all mental essentially, with some minor, you know, physical abilities trickled in there. Yeah. It, it takes so much out of you. I know when we used to play at our back in the day when we were play for hours. I mean, I'd be exhausted when I'd get done with like a, a 10, 12 hour, like just straight gaming period. But that was just in pubs. That was just playing with friends, you know, trying to have a good time, doing some crazier things. And I remember every now and then every, you know, third, fourth round, whatever, we would do something stupid and not care to sure. just alleviate the pressure. Because if we were trying to win over and over again, which is a point to where I got to a little bit where I had to step back and say, hold on, let me let me not do this anymore. So I'm not going crazy. Right. Um. Like it just, it, it wears on you. Sure. So I can only imagine what they have to do because they do have to practice. If you want to keep your job and keep your starting spot, you have to practice. You have to be one of those best players on your roster and you have to be showing that in matches on a week-to-week basis, a day-to-day basis, depending on what your schedule is. And these guys, on top of the practices, they're doing film study. I mean, this is professional. You're looking at your opponents that are coming up. They're study- you're studying film. Arguably, you could be stuck in a practice running the same approach scenario like, hey, this team always tends to kind of take this approach onto this control point. You're running that again and again and again, maybe swapping one player, seeing if that works, swap another player, see if that works. So, you know, similar to even even hearkening back to like factory workers, you know, back in the day putting the same bolt in the same place and there's even a fatigue to that so oh absolutely oh my goodness you're you're spot on with that and that's i think cuban was so hot about the there's no meta changes in the nba could you imagine the kind of practices you'd have to have in the middle of the season if they changed a rule in the middle of the year like i understand the need for a computer-based game to to kind of keep updating their game keep evolving their game over time um to make it you know attractive to everybody keep everybody's interest but I did not like the introduction of Bridget, and I refuse to call her by any other name. By the way, I'm not doing it. Sorry. Come on, man. We're running into an you can come at me podcast. You got it. It's I refuse to do. No, fam. No, it is Bridget for all intents and purposes for me. Anyway, um, but they introduced a completely new hero, and what you're talking about with having to reassess how you go about combating that person, it, it changed everything mid-season. Everybody had to go back to the drawing board. So it wasn't just like the lower teams, you know, having to figure this out or the top teams having to figure it out. It was everybody. So that's where a lot of that fatigue came in again in the middle of the year, having to redo basically their entire game plan from the season. Now, from a game standpoint, do I understand exactly why Overwatch had to do it? Yeah, everybody was running dive comp. Dive comp worked. It was the end. It was the end all be all at a certain point. So it was necessary. But for me, as a fan, as a watcher and as a, a sports enthusiast and watching other leagues, it was the wrong time. You needed to wait and you needed to get through season one before you made a huge change like that. Now, can you add new heroes throughout the course of a season and not introduce them into the, the competitive game itself? Absolutely. 
Heroes of New Earth did that all the time when they had competitive matches going on. They would introduce new heroes to the public, but not allow them to be playable in games until everybody kind of had them figured out, until some changes were made. Um, I think that is the approach that Overwatch probably should go with, is whatever you have at the start of the season is what you should end up with at the end of the season um, in terms of the meta. Um, or if people can figure out some new strategies midway, that's fine, but you have to work with the heroes you're given um, at the start of the year. So it, it, that also gives you the off-season, basically, to work yourself through those situations with new heroes. That alleviates, again, the burnout because you're just you're figuring things out when you have plenty of time to figure them out, basically. So I would love to see them go that route instead of doing what they did this past season, which was introducing somebody smack dab in the middle of the year, completely changing the, the structure and layout of the game, essentially, and how it was being played competitively. Um, and I do think it had a huge effect on what we considered the top teams at the time. We saw some teams bottom out after that ad, uh, that addition of Bridget. We had some teams who were terrible up until that point start running Bridget exclusively, and they looked phenomenal. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this hero just fits their gameplay or the way they like to play, and it completely changed everything, like I said. Yeah, and it wasn't just Brigitte being added. Um, Hanzo was changed pretty drastically. I actually believe Sombra was an addition into season one i think after stage one sombra um who uh, who contributed to the dive in a big way uh, oh yeah you know you'd have her in the back she'd all bang you know nobody in the back line can use any of their abilities and then that's when your dive swoops in and starts trying to clean up so a lot of changes and they were asked to adapt very quickly there was uh what i think it was <laughs> two weeks in between stages when they would patch so yeah it's something like that it wasn't a lot of time and that's like i said that's when so instead of having that off season to figure all those things out you know one day at a time one practice at a time focusing on one thing they were trying to do it all in a two-week span and that's just that's asking too much we are coming up against the clock a little bit so i uh, did want to give so we've used a lot of terminology in this i want to kind of blitz through these bang 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 we'll hit them so what we were talking about dive is there's a section of the team that has high mobility. They will swoop in to engage into an enemy's quote-unquote backline. Uh, their goal is to focus on one single person, someone that's critical to the other team's survival, and eliminate them and then try to get back out as quickly as possible. So they dive in, kill somebody, and get out. Yeah, um, the high mobility, the tracers, the uh, the Genjis, those kind of heroes, those are definitely the ones going in. Usually you're trying to pick off a support, a Zenyatta, a Mercy, Yep. Somebody who's definitely needed, and that allows you to open up more space because the other team has to fall back when they lose yeah. one of those type of supports. Yeah, don't want to don't want to keep trying to engage if you've lost your support. Um, composition or comp, that's just the makeup of a team. So we dive comp, goats comp, slambulance comp. It's all just we're talking about how the team is formed. What kind of strategy are they trying to implement? Which characters are they using? Uh, we got backline. So backline is any character is composed of any character who's supposed to perform their task from a distance. So they're in the back of the fight. Um, Anna, Widow, New Ash, uh, those types of characters who are going to be in the back. Uh, they don't want to be up front. They don't want to be the focus of attention. Um, you know, typical. You know, a lot of support characters, a couple snipers, those kinds of things. And then we've got frontline. This is all your tanks. Um, and frontline like close damage dealers, Doomfist, uh, Reinhardt, Diva, Roadhog, arguably McCree can be kind of he can kind of be in between frontline or backline. Um, yeah, depending on how you want to play him. So yeah, uh, main tank is a tank character who sacrifices some other abilities to just be able to take a ton of damage. So um, 
These are your meat shields. Yeah, your meat shields. Exactly. So um, these are the characters. They have shields. They have armor. But they don't have any mobility. They're not going to do a whole ton of damage. But they they are big and they're loud and they're the focus of all, everyone's attention. So... Um, yeah, their definite goal is to be the biggest distraction, have everybody focused on them, so you're taking all the damage because you're likely not going to die, an instant, at least instantaneously, yeah. from everybody coming at you, and you're going to open up more space uh, for some of your flankers, some of your, your DPS to kind of pick off heroes, and yep. keep you, even at a certain level, keep you alive because you're they're eliminating other damage to you. But yeah, these are the heroes that, for, for lack of you know a better word, are just unglorified. They don't get a lot of credit for a lot of things that they do, but... Yeah. Uh, they're certainly super important, depending on how your team is comprised. Yeah, so probably the two bigger main tanks, Orissa, Reinhardt. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Off tanks are tank characters who maybe don't have quite as much ability to take all that damage. Their shields aren't quite as strong. They don't have as much armor, those types of things. However, they gain some uh, ability or mobility. So either they have a little bit more offensive capability or they have the ability to move around, flank, um you know, kind of get into a different position. Yeah, the most consistent off tank is by far D.Va. Um, doesn't do a ton of damage, but has such great mobility and can protect supports like none other. All right, the next type of character in the game are DPS characters. Damage stands for damage per second. Um, these are broken down into two different types of characters. They are hit scan DPS characters and they're projectile DPS characters. So projectile dps characters exactly what it sounds like you launch a rocket you launch a grenade there's a certain amount of travel time it has a certain speed so you kind of have to predict where the player is going to be and try to put your rocket on that spot um versus a hit scan dps character which is wherever your cursor is when you click the button that's where your projectile hits it's instantaneous um these are you know like your assault rifle characters your sniper rifle characters those kinds of things yeah, the benefit of being a projectile is you also can get some splash damage. So if you happen to not not hit exactly, you can still do damage to to a hero. But if you miss a hit scan, and hit scanning is probably one of the hardest things to do for a lot of people, is be able to track a person flying around the screen all the time and actually click the mouse when you're on them. So um, the people who can do that, I envy them mightily. Um, I'm okay at hit scan in certain games, not so great at it in uh, an Overwatch. So I usually take stick to Projectile-type heroes, especially if I'm trying to DPS. But there's a trade-off for each one. Just send oh, yeah, man. in, man. <laughs> Absolutely. If you, know how to, if you know how to angle people off and keep people going one direction, a good junk rat can do you a lot of work floated to it naturally, obviously being a demo man from TF2. But uh, it, a good junk rat can go a long way if you know what you're doing. A um, couple of compositions to talk about real quick. Goat's Comp is a triple tank, triple support. So you're typically going to do three tanks, Reinhardt, Zarya, D.Va, and typically three supports consisting of Brigitte, Moira, Lucio. Um, the idea is to just get all the tanks together. All of those heroes have some sort of AoE heal, so you're just keeping all three tanks alive and just to overwhelm the other team with force, break up whatever strategy they had, and then start trying to clean up. And a slight modification of that, the Slambulance composition which was is basically just swaps out a tank for a healer um again just trying to overwhelm your the other team with uh tanks get into whatever strategy and then and then pick people off yeah i like i like both of these comps obviously they have certain uh certain situations where they're most beneficial usually when you either need to 
cap a point altogether, just one tick on a, a point on a control map or something like that. Um, or if you're actually just stuck trying to defend, you just have to hold out for an overtime to end. You're just looking maybe to get one or two pickoffs, but essentially you just need to not die. Um, I really love the Slambulance personally. Um, it combines those AOE healers with some of the biggest tanks that are in the game, your Reinhardt, your Roadhogs, the Diva. Um, a lot of people like to add a Zarya for that shield. It's it's something that I enjoy watching, and I think it its popularity kind of took off, at least in my opinion, watching teams uh, do it on Horizon Lunar Colony. Because if you do a good Slambulance, you can get through both points very, very quickly. Um, but especially that first point, if you do it right, it's so tough to stop because it's so hard to do enough damage to counteract the amount of healing and uh, health total health that's just coming at you they can just out sustain you on a point and it's it's really fun to watch for me uh, when teams actually decide to run it it's just not all that common because it doesn't have too many uses in other areas but yeah. they're still fun to see yeah and, I, and and that can be the kickoff of a snowball right there if you can kind of quickly overwhelm that first point you know there's a good chance you can get the enemy on the back on their back foot and it could be over from there yeah, it, not only are you going to get them on the back foot, but if you do it properly with the Moira Lucio, you're getting to your your alts a lot faster than they are, especially your support alts. Then when you just you try to run to the next point, um, usually you have the two support alts up, and then the um, the tanks will eventually get theirs by the time they get there. It's just it's one of those things that can just go so fast and it's over before you know it. All right, so I think that wraps up a pretty good look at Overwatch League Season 2, some of the changes from Season 1 into Season 2, why those changes were made, a lot of the terms that you're going to hear us using throughout the podcast. So what we want to do now at the end of the podcast is kind of recap Season 1, take a look at some of the teams and some of the players that you should be maybe keeping an eye on. I mean, obviously, make your own decisions so yeah, the top teams from last year that we were all looking at were uh, the New York Excelsior, uh, commonly referred to as NYXL, the LA Valiant, the Boston Uprising, the LA Gladiators, and the London Spitfire. Obviously, London won the whole thing, but those teams were certainly some of the, the best teams down the stretch. I think those were the teams that adjusted best to the Bridget ad, um, so the meta change, obviously, in the middle of the season, as well as the teams that just seemed to have the most flexibility within their rosters to play different heroes, um, adjust to different comps in game and to basically know what's coming from another team that I, I always felt like they were a step ahead of a lot of teams um, when it came to to, pre to preparation on a week-to-week -week basis, match-to-match. -match. Runner-up last year, uh, the Philly Fusion. Um, I think they just got hot personally. I, I, they're a good team, don't get me wrong. I just feel like they happened to hit the right button at the right time to knock off the teams that they, they knocked off, notably uh, the NYXL, um, who most people thought should have been in the finals. But it is what it is. That's why they play the game. Um, but those are certainly five teams to keep an eye out on. Obviously, with the expansion, uh, we're going to learn very quickly who, who's for real and who's not this year. I've really enjoyed watching uh, Valiant kind of pick up towards the end of the season. I think they had been a team that, that struggled through. Um, I actually thought Boston Uprising was actually a pretty sneaky team throughout the entire season. Um, and the fact that they ended up in the top is not not terribly surprising to me um but i really felt like watching valiant kind of come together i think a couple patches played into played into really well what they do and so we saw a really good push from them at the end um that got them into that top five so they were a lot of fun to watch also just yeah. so that we get this out of the way people will speculate um i think brian and i are both pretty committed houston fans through and through yeah, definitely. We committed to that. There's no change, and I'm not going back. Uh, I'll readily admit Jake's my favorite player to watch, and it's all related to Junkrat. 
We love to <laughs> affectionately refer to that as the, the Jake rat. I wish he'd pull it out more often, but obviously with me being a junk rat fan, it was a natural flow for me um, to, to, to watch him and just go ahead and bank on the team that he's playing for. So hopefully they have a little better of a season this year. I thought they should have made the playoffs and failed to live up to their own expectations because they did not look good some weeks. And then other yep. weeks they looked spectacular. It was like, what are you guys doing to me? So yeah, some weeks it looks they're they're conquering top teams, and the next week you're biting your nails against you know San Francisco Shock or yeah, just completely head scratching moments from them. Just it made no sense. And then, I mean, they had a, what I thought was one of the top DPS players uh, with Linkser. Um, they had Muma. I mean, I thought they had enough to to certainly be a top five team um, going into the grand finals, and they just they just flat out fell on their faces. I can't explain what happened in stage four, honestly. Yeah, definitely. It, it, something that is interesting about the Outlaws that I'd like to see addressed, um, and I don't know if any, I don't think it's been addressed in any of his offseason uh, adventures by Jake, but we would see Houston in the beginning of the matches, they would start an alternate DPS, and then Jake would only come in from the second match on. Uh, it was puzzling to me. It seemed like once Jake came in, the team had a lot more uh, gelled together a lot better, usually had a, usually experienced a lot more success. Uh, once he was in so it was weird that they would consistently start this alternate dps and then second match put jake in and ride that ride that out i have no explanation for why he wasn't on the first map every time because they usually fell behind and then you're stuck trying to catch up the whole time yeah. i think it's actually going to be really interesting to see how they handle their dps this year because they signed dante yeah and uh i thought he was he looked really good late in the season last year so I, I don't know how they're going to play that. I certainly, like I said, I, I'm a big Jake fan anyway, but I certainly hope that at least Jake is out there for that first match to get them a good start. And then I'm assuming Dante and Linkser will be the rotation, but if you're asking me, Jake needs to be, be playing more, more frequently for that team to be more successful. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some other players to kind of keep an eye on. Um, Jay Jonak from New York Excelsior. I don't know what else can be said other than seventh teammate right <laughs> i mean all you gotta do is say mvp yeah, mvp <laughs> how do you, how, how, the things he did yeah. with Zenata are not supposed to be done they're just simply nope. not yeah. he was he was playing a third dps as a support and it was absurd to watch yeah it, it, so if you're not terribly familiar Zenyatta support character um but jay jonak the way he played him was really good at hitting his shots um he's kind of a projectile dps so he was just really good at hitting the headshots and he could really pick some players off out of the back line. And it's so, yeah, it's like the other team has that third DPS or that extra DPS that you're not even expecting. Oh, it's absurd because you, you have to lead people. You have to time the release of the, the orbs. I mean, it, the things that he knew and could do just yeah. I have no words for you just watch in amazement and just appreciate it, honestly, because, you know, you're not going to be able to ever do that. No, no absolutely not. Um, another person who exhibited some serious skills that you're never going to be able to do either uh <laughs> pine also for new york excelsior absolute monster sniper rifle mccree like if you get a chance to watch him play either one just just be ready to be to have your jaw drop yeah he hits shots that you're like what he plays a very very aggressive Widowmaker. he loves to get in your face he yep. hits shots at close range and you're looking at him like you, i didn't even see the guy long enough for me to know that he was there on right. my screen, how did you know to hit the, pull the trigger? Yeah, uh, his McCree is spectacular. You don't want to play Farah against him. It's it's no, not it's not fair. Um, if you're asking me, he's the best DPS player in the game, and I think he was underutilized by NYXL. But they have so many great players that they didn't need him all the time, even though they fell short of obviously the grand finals. Yeah, absolutely. but it's just he, on another level sometimes. And if he starts going off, if he's in his zone, just 
just go ahead and concede, even though that's not an option. Yeah, no, fight through. But yeah, for <laughs> a, what a lot of other people's trick shots would be, Pon was like, oh, I'll just make this shot and I'll be good to go. Yeah, it's just another day at the office for him. Like, I yep. never got it. Clock in, clock out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another another player I kind of felt uh, when he came onto the battlefield, specifically for me when he was playing Genji, uh, agilities could really just change how the other team was playing. He was super successful in the dive comp, even after the release of Brigida. Largely responsible for Valiant's push towards the end was uh, agilities. He's a DPS player for the Valiant. Uh, but I think his Genji play was kind of was kind of on that next level. Yeah, he was one that loved to to use his alt at basically just the right time. You you never ever said he wasted that alt. Um, and you're right between him and I think the addition of Custa late in the season. Yep. Um, that was that was their big push, and that's what vaulted them into that top five and into the the grand finals playoffs. Yep. Um, they looked spectacular late, and it was really because of those two guys. Um, obviously, and speaking of Custa, his mercy play, some of the some of the best in the league. And he's what he started out with Dallas last year, didn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He got I, he, I'm pretty sure he got traded midseason and he changed he changed their support play for that Valiant team who I thought was pretty bad, honestly, for a while. I will not lie about that. So well, they, they, they definitely had some very late. big struggles in early stages for sure. Yeah. Those later two stages, though, I was like, oh, man, this this Valiant team is for real and they can they can pick off anybody. And this wasn't the meta change that got them because they weren't the biggest Bridget players, in my opinion. Um, it was they just started to gel. They started to play better. They started to make better decisions. And I, I like to give Custa a lot of credit for that because I think he called a lot of the shots for them personally. Yeah. I think that's how it worked for, for their team internally. No, absolutely. I think they did bring him in a, in a big way for his leadership. And I think that even got mentioned by multiple of the announcers um, just, just that he when he came in, he exhibited a lot of leadership as Mercy and, and was able to, to really call the shots. So. Some other quick damage, you know, just some really good damage dealers. Don't want to necessarily deep dive on every single one of them, but Bird Ring, Great Sniper, uh, Carpe for Fusion. Um, pulse Bombs galore! So many Pulse Bombs. Um, and then another, maybe not the, the most amazing player in the entire league, but someone that I really felt changed the team's trajectory uh, was when AKM was added to the Dallas Fuel. I think them adding AKM and also cutting XQC kind of, you know, kind of pulled Dallas out of that. They were heading for Shanghai Dragons level of, of you know, 0 and 40 kind Dude, of. Dude, I think they, they were headed for like five total wins. Yeah. And that was basically a Shanghai. Yeah. Those those three players, great damage players, uh, people to keep an eye on for sure. Argue If, if Jay Jonak certainly towards the end was the best Zenyatta, I think the person who really kicked off the Zenyatta movement uh, for the Overwatch League, Ryu Jong for Seoul, uh, played an amazing in Zenyatta stage one even into stage two kind of fell off towards the end, but just another really great support player. Yeah. Jay Hong was the original Zenyatta, honestly, and not yep. many people were mentioning Jonak early in the year. They were all talking about Jay Hong on Zenyatta uh, for soul. When soul was going off on everybody between him and Fleta picking people off, it was, it was fun to watch them. And they were obviously the top team in the league for at least a stage and stage and a half, maybe not all of stage two. Yeah. But, uh, but certainly, um, he was the original original DPS Zenyatta, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, he was he was certainly important to their team. Unfortunately, their team just nosedived to the end of the year, so he did not get the credit that he deserved for the way he played on Zenyatta. Tanks are kind of hard to justify. They typically, you know, they're not involved in the big flashy plays, as Brian was mentioned earlier, kind of underappreciated for a lot of what they do because it's kind of stand in the front with your shield up and don't die. But um, 
I felt like Muma from the Outlaws, just a great tank player all around. Some of his Winston was absolutely amazing. I saw some Arisa in there where you're just like, okay, you know, this guy is soaking up everything or putting his team in a great position to to win this fight. So I, I want to give credit to to Muma for his excellent tank play. Oh, absolutely. Tanks are so underappreciated in this game. They do so much and get so little credit because they're not getting all the kills. They're not making all the, the hero plays. They're simply being the biggest distractions. They're they're taking other teams' supports and DPS heroes and saying, hey, look at me, look at me, come focus on me so my my team can come pick you off here and there. Yeah. Um, but Muma was really great. I, I love watching his Winston play. Um, I like to play Winston personally. I understand he's not the greatest tank in the world, but um, he can be a huge distraction. He's a big part of the dive comp, obviously, because of his mobility. Yeah. Uh, but he certainly certain plays of one of the better Winstons in the league. And I'm going to give a shout out to Poco. He did not get much play during the latter half of the year because Fraggy came on because that Philly team got hot down the stretch. Yep. But early in the season, when you saw him play Diva as an off tank, he was their MVP for a while. I mean, he he got a couple of quad kills, uh, plenty of triple kills and uh, double kills, obviously. Yeah, some of those but Diva bombs he, were just nasty. You're watching it go in. You're uh, like, oh, no. <laughs> You're watching them and you're going, how did you even know to throw the freaking self-destruct around that corner over that wall? Like, how many times did you practice that move so you could do it consistently every time? Because teams didn't know where it was coming from. You heard it. You couldn't find it. It was yeah, it was the skill of the diva bombs, not necessarily just oh there it is, but it's it's the placement, it's the when it happened, those kinds of things. Um, And I know for Counter Strike, you know, you put a person in a particular position and he would get the exact angle to put a flashbang or a molotov in the exact right spot and so i just imagine poco doing that you know time after time after time just getting in this particular spot and seeing where he can get that diva bomb to yeah i just see him being in some sort of practice server honestly and just yep. launching self-destructs everywhere just <laughs> yep. saying all right where's this go? all right where's this because exactly. he, he pulled off some incredible self-destructs it was great uh, but yeah he just unfortunately didn't get much play down the stretch because his team was playing better with other lineups, but he was one of the one of the better diva players all season. All right, and with that, we want to talk about getting this season underway. So, stage one, we already talked start date Valentine's Day in the United States, uh, February fourteenth, two thousand nineteen. Got a pretty good slate of matches here. It's gonna kick off seven p.m. with a rematch. I can't believe they did this. London finals Spitfire, rematch, baby. Philly Fusion finals rematch to kick it all off. Me personally, I had to put this game at eight thirty just to get people to watch the first game. Yeah, um, I totally understand why they're doing this. They're trying to build up momentum, trying to get everybody back engaged in this. Let the hopefully to generate a few more rivalries, so to yep. speak. That's always drives some competition in professional leagues. So if this can become a thing, it'd be great. Um, like I said, I personally would have loved to see it at the second slot just so you get kind of a an undercard before you get the title bout, so to speak. Yeah. Just like on a in a boxing match. Yep. But it's gonna it's gonna be great. I'm I'm ready for that matchup. Ooh, I'll be so watching. I'll be, it'll be interesting to see how much how much Philly comes out and is trying to make amends for their lackluster performance, to say the least, uh, yeah. in the, the grand finals last year against London. Albeit, let's give credit where credit is due. London was spectacular all season long. They absolutely were. Um, so we're the getting, second matchup. 0-3 on the final. Oh, that's, yeah. That's just yeah. not good. Not yeah. good. It's not good for the, for the sport, in my opinion. Nope. Uh, I said this to you at the time. Like You want those matches to be drawn out, so you've got to change yeah. something to make sure that happens. Yeah, um, the second match of the day is going to be the NYXL up against Boston Uprising. Um, this should be another good matchup. Just, uh, you know, it's Boston, New York. Obviously, hey. it's, 
it's esports, but Boston and New York just don't like each other. Simple as that. Just come on. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. It's Boston and it New York. Boston, New York. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Um, a couple of really good teams, high-level teams going at it. We're seeing see what kind of changes they make after their underachieving, I'm sure, for them performances in the finals playoffs last year. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of changes they make and what they bring to the table going into round, uh, the first match of the season for them. Yeah, definitely. And then the next one, another two good powerhouses from last year, the Gladiators, who are kind of coming on strong, coming into their own, really gelling as a team, uh, taking on the Seoul Dynasty, uh, 10 p.m. These are all Eastern Standard Times. And again, you know, kind of a chance for Seoul to kind of show, hey, you know, we we kind of tapered off towards the end of last season, but we're coming back. We're strong. And for Gladiators, just a chance to show that we've grown a little bit more. All right, last match. This one's pretty cool to me. I think there's actually some intrigue here. Um, it's 11.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's the Shanghai Dragons. So if you're not super familiar with last season, they actually did not get a win. They went 0-40. So they are taking on an expansion team, the Hangzhou Spark. So I think this is a really great opportunity for them to come in, come in strong, and potentially pick off one of those expansion teams early, get that win, get it behind them and then move on into a really strong season two. Yeah, absolutely. This is certainly set up for them to get the monkey off their back early and not have it draw out into a, a second day, a second week, a second stage, anything like that. Um, nobody knows what to really expect from some of these expansion teams, even though some of these expansion teams did sign some big players um, during the off season and put them, you know, as kind of their, their front two or three players on their roster. So it's going to be interesting to see what Hangzhou has to, has to offer this is going to be a matchup for those diehards who want to see Shanghai get a win, who are interested to see what the Spark have to offer as an expansion team, kind of to set the tone possibly for the rest of the expansion teams because nobody, again, has seen them play. Yeah. There's no preseason this year to kind of get an idea of what to expect from some of these teams. Oh, yeah, good but point, good point. This is, this is going to be that matchup that says, hey, are these expansion teams for real or is this just some more door, doormats for the top-tier teams to, to push around? And then again, somebody for the Shanghai Dragons to kind of compete against. So we'll have to wait and see what actually happens with that match. Can't promise I'll be up because I believe that's a, a Wednesday night, uh, if, I, if I'm if i correct. It's getting a little late on a work night for sure. <laughs> yeah, you're not lying. No, it's actually a Thursday night. So okay. it's still a work night, but at least the next day is Friday. So there's there's hope there to, to make it to that 1130 match. And hopefully I can be, be awake to make sure, uh, or not to make sure, but to just see if the Dragons can, can get their first win in their Overwatch League, you know, careers. So I think it'd be big for them if they can pull it off. But great first first day of games. Um, super excited to see all those teams play. Yeah. Like you were saying about Seoul, can they can they bounce back from where they finished last year? And then for the Gladiators in the match before uh, the, the nightcap, can the Gladiators prove that their, their late season surge was not just that, just a kind of a late season, you know, we got into a groove and we were able to pull this thing out. Can they prove that they're one of the top teams in Overwatch League year in and year out? All right, everybody, and that brings the first, the inaugural episode to a close. So next episode, stick with us. It's going to be pretty exciting. We're going to start taking a look at the divisions. We're going to start breaking down the teams, looking at rosters, looking at the changes in the rosters, the turnover, who left, who's in. Um, and hopefully we're going to get a chance to take a look and go through some, some big moments that Brian and I saw from season one. Hey, these were like pivotal, either team breaking team making moments, um, from that first season. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I'm ready to get ready and uh, get into these rosters, go through some of the changes, some of the people that were signed to new teams or traded. Um, There was quite a bit of player movement. We'll start breaking some of that down um, in the next episode. Um, And then those top five moments. Uh, I won't lie, mine might not be the most pivotal, my five at least. Um, They may just be some of the most hero plays, some of the best hero plays, some of the best uh, alt uses, just things like that. Just things that made you go wow, so to speak. Yeah, keep you on the edge of the seat, get you excited, get you pumped up, get you hyped. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember, stay tuned with us, connect with us on social media, and we'll catch you in the next episode.